it's working. It's, it seems to come and go. How's that? Okay. Right. If you feel you missed out on biscuits and walking around the church, there's plenty of time afterwards to have biscuits and to walk around. Okay. You'll find um, chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus on pages 58 and 59 in the church, uh, in the church Bible. I'll try not to walk away from this microphone. I'm used to having it clipped to my, my sweater. Okay. So, here we are beginning this. It's approximately 400 years since uh, Joseph um, was sold to, um, into, um, into Egypt and became, in effect, second ruler in the whole of the land, 400 years. And it starts off. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all of that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, 
she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershon, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of the slavery, their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. John. the sermon uh, we're going to sing our next song chapters one and two let's pray together as we come to god's word <coughs> father we ask that you would open our eyes um, to see clearly what it is you want us to see from your word this morning especially that we might see jesus 
especially that we might renew our faith in him and discover more deeply what it means for us to be children of the promise that you made all the way back to Abraham and have kept completely in Jesus for us. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, recently in our, in our house we've been reading The Hobbit, uh, which is a great story. I've been reading it to uh, one of my kids. And it's a scary story in lots of ways. It's, uh, it's, it's about this kind of adventure and these creatures that band together as little hobbit and his dwarf friends. And they face dragons and they face uh, challenges of all different kinds. And as we've been reading it together, occasionally the question has been, how is it going to end? Is it going to be okay? And actually, what one question has been, do you know? the ending, Dad? Do you know what's coming? And I've been able to say, yes, I know, I know. It's okay, I know. And actually, in one sense, not knowing the ending, but knowing that I knew the ending was enough. It was enough. It kind of gave what you might call the reader's edge on the story. So that as we read it together, there was some reassurance that it was going to be okay in the end. Well, I wonder whether we ever have that feeling. Do you know what's coming? Do, does anyone know <laughs> what's coming in our lives, in this world? As we live in the 21st century here in the UK, as we seek to find meaning for our existence, as we seek to figure out what it means for us even to be alive, is there a storyline? Is there anyone in control? Is there anywhere that we're heading? Is there an end to all of this? Does anybody know? As a church in the UK, increasingly feeling diminished and weak, like our voice is hard to, to be heard as we face new challenges in the culture, it's easy to ask the question, isn't it? Is there any hope? Will we survive? Where's this all going? Does anybody know? And us as believers as well, as we face the uncertainty of our own lives and maybe in your life and the challenges of your circumstances, it's easy to ask the question, isn't it? Is anybody in control here? Is there an author behind all of this? Is there someone to whom we can turn? Does anybody know? Does anybody know? And actually, as we arrive in the book of Exodus, the big thing I want us to hear this morning, and this will come up time and time again, is that God knows. God knows. Now, we're jumping into the middle of a story, really that doesn't begin with the book of Exodus. In fact, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, makes a big mistake that we all learnt at school we should never do, which is to start a sentence with the word and. Now, it doesn't appear in our translation, but if we were to go back to the Hebrew, the word and is right at the beginning. It says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. It's really strange, isn't it, that a book should begin with the word and. We all learn we should never start a sentence with and. 
let alone a book. But it's a reminder, actually, that this is kind of season two in the box set of what God is doing in the world. This is the continuation of a story that started much, much earlier on. You see, as we've been remembering already, as we've kind of been eating biscuits, or some of us have, actually the point is that God kind of made promises in response to uh, the, the kind of devastating fracturing of the world through the fall, he made promises that he's slowly and carefully been working out and keeping through uh, the story. So let me just read to you from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. You might like to turn there. It's right towards the beginning of your Bible. You can see it there. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. I just wanted to see a couple of things. This is the promise. So God makes the world, and he, he puts humanity in his world, and we're called to kind of enjoy living in his presence, to flourish, to multiply, to be fruitful, and to fill the earth. And we're to do that as we live under God's word, listening to his voice, and enjoying his blessing. But of course, we know the story of Adam and Eve is one in which rather than listen to God's voice, we choose to go our own way. And basically, the curse, God curses the world. We fall under his judgment and everything is fractured and marred from there on. And here in chapter 12, almost out of nowhere, God speaks. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. So the point is this, that actually, and a couple of things in particular, God is going to make a people of his own, and God is going to place them in a land of his making. And through this people, God is going to bless the whole world, including you and I, today. And there's a sense in which God calls this people to himself, they're called Israel, eventually. So at this point, it's Abraham. He has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob becomes renamed Israel. And his children, are those are the ones who are, uh, 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 then be, kind of begin to be listed at the start of Exodus. And so you can see that the, that the story is beginning to happen. God is beginning to make a people of his own. But God is making this people out of the world of all the people, really to put them under the microscope to show us today, to show everyone the extent of our problem and to prepare for God's amazing solution. But how will it end? We don't know. Does anybody know? It's a good question. So let's go back to Exodus. And actually what we're given is a sense in which the whole of the promise is under threat. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. A new king 
to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Now, sometimes when you look at the Bible, it's easy to think, oh, God had plan A, that was the Old Testament, and then he kind of, that didn't really work, so he sent Jesus, and that's kind of plan B. But actually, that's not what's going on here at all. This is one story in which God, against all odds, all earthly odds, keeps his promise and remains faithful, with it all culminating in one particular Israelite, one person, through this trial. Through this people, Jesus, in whom all of the promises of God are yes and amen and are kept perfectly. So as we look at this, what we're learning is really about ourselves, about how we are part of this story. It's teaching us about our problem and about God's solution for us. But how will it end? Where will it go? Well, look at the end of chapter 2 with me. At this point, we get basically the reader's edge. So here we are listening to the story, just like my, my son. What's happening? Do you know the ending? What's coming? And then we get this reader's edge just for us in verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Literally, it says God knew. As God was concerned, it says God knew. Do you see God heard? God remembered, God saw, and God knew. So that's what I want us to hear this morning. As the, as the author of creation, as the author of history, God knows. God knows. And we're shown two kind of foundational realities, really, about ourselves what it means for us to be human, into which we need to apply, into which God speaks that truth. And the first is simply this. We are slaves. We are slaves. Just like the Israelites, we are slaves. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as a store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in bricks and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Every word, pretty much, in that kind of paragraph is there to kind of sort of describe just how difficult and how oppressive the environment was for the people of God. This is Pharaoh's plan, isn't it? 
to deal shrewdly with God's people, to suppress them and get rid of them. But it doesn't really work, and so he has to be even more brutal. And he kind of begins to employ, or he thinks he's trying to employ, the Hebrew midwives to kind of come. And uh, the Hebrew midwives are going to be those who sort of try and bump off all these children for them. But that doesn't work. In fact, there's Pharaoh saying, look, we're going to deal shrewdly with all of these people. And actually, he's the one who's dealt shrewdly with by five women, we're told. Basically, there's the, the Shipra and Puah, and then there's the three women in chapter 2. Moses' sister, Moses' mother, and Pharaoh's own daughter. They basically all stitch him over. It's a kind of joke, really, that this man who thinks he's so incredibly powerful can be undone through a few faithful women. But actually, he goes one step further, doesn't he? Instead of that kind of sneaky murder that he tries, it becomes blatant murder. Verse 22 of chapter 1. Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is how the Pharaoh is going to try and bump off the people of God. But it kind of shows us that actually, Pharaoh is not so much against Moses, we haven't even been introduced to Moses yet. He's not so much against Israel as really being against God as the author of life. God is, uh, Pharaoh is railing against the giver of life in his attempt to exterminate God's people. Now just think again about that microscope. So if you think about it, God is taking this particular group of people, placing them under his microscope to reveal to all of us as we look in the nature of our human condition and the need that we have for God to bring a solution. See, Jesus says of us, he says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Striking language, isn't it? That's what he says. He says that is who we are. In our human condition, we're slaves. We're under this oppression of our own sinful nature, and there's nothing we can do about it. And here, in Exodus 1, with the, with the oppression of Pharaoh, we see, in a sense, sin at its most cruel and its most insane. It doesn't stop until it tastes blood. Well, I wonder if that's been your experience. Have you experienced the destructive, the aggressive, powerful insanity of sin in your life? Have you experienced its slavery? I don't think we like to picture ourselves that way, do we? We don't like to think that that's our human nature. We'd rather not think about it at all. In fact, what we'd like to believe is that we're somehow neutral and that we get to choose one way or the other. And actually, if we do choose to follow God, well, really, we're just doing him a favor. He's very good to have, him, have us on his team. But actually, the reality is 
without God's grace in our lives, we're in servitude, we're slaves to an abusive master. But God knows. God knows. That's what we're reminded of in these verses. We're slaves, but God knows. Look back at verse 7 of chapter 1 of Exodus. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. It's actually an echo of creation. This is what God said to Adam and Eve. Go forth and multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. And it's exactly what's happening amongst the people of God, even under their oppression. Look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. It's like every single attempt that Pharaoh has to try and suppress them is actually just another way that God works to bring about his own glory. In fact, whatever the king does, even as he kind of tries to employ these Hebrew midwives, what happens? Look at verse 20. God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. It's like every single tactic that Pharaoh seeks to employ is just another opportunity for God to bless his people. Even in Egypt, God is with them. Even in slavery, God is with them and blessing them even now. And so at kind of the end of chapter 1, what we see is sort of half of Abraham's fulfillment. God's people are numerous. They're filling the, the land, we're told. But they're not in the land. They're in the wrong land. They're in slavery. It's like, yes, tick, God's people. Ah, What about the land? And it does look hopeless, doesn't it, from a human perspective? It looks utterly hopeless, which is really where we arrive at chapter 2. And that's the second thing for us to see this morning. We're slaves, but God knows. It looks hopeless. It looks hopeless. Moses appears on the scene in verse 1, verse, verse 2. It's really interesting. So it finishes chapter 1. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile. Chapter 2. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. What's going to happen to this baby? What's going to happen to this Hebrew boy? Well, actually, it turns out he will be thrown into the Nile. But he's thrown into the Nile in a really unusual way, isn't he? So verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she got this papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it and put it in the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now that word for basket, in fact, you might have it as a footnote in your NIV. It says the Hebrew can also mean ark. And it's the only other place in the Bible where this word is used. So basically he's saying they threw Moses into the Nile, but they put him in an ark. Which is immediately reminding us of the story, is it not, of Noah's ark. 
It's like even in this moment of hopelessness, where it seems to be all over for the people of God, and this final little baby boy as he's born into the world is tossed into the Nile, there's the possibility, a little mini reminder, a little glimpse that maybe, just as God had promised with Noah, he would not give up on his humanity. He would not wipe out the world again, but would instead rescue them. Maybe God has a purpose for this baby, after all. Moses grows up, and in verse 11, it's really interesting, isn't it? He's grown up in, as an Egyptian in the palace of Pharaoh, but, verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. He watched them at their hard labor, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. It's a strange story, isn't it? But in one sense, what we see is this tiny little baby who's kind of saved against all of the odds, who goes into the place of death and is brought out alive, being the one who then identifies himself with solidarity with his own people. He sees their unjust oppression, but then he kind of takes things into his own hands. He kind of treats them the way actually they treated the people of God. Maybe in the end, it's only God who can save his people, not a mere man. What Moses is trying to do through brute strength and Egyptian politics or whatever else, actually, in the end, it's only God who will do it through his divine power. But Moses is a picture for us, isn't he? He's a fallen picture. He's a, he's a marred picture but a picture for us of one who will go into the place of death and be brought through to life and a rescue for us all. Just as we see our human condition, just as we see the full extent of our own sinfulness and helplessness, we also glimpse God's rescue. See, the Bible tells us that in the end, God keeps his promise completely and finally and perfectly in Jesus. And Jesus is cast into the place of death. He dies on a cross, bearing in his own body the punishment we deserve for our sin and rebellion against him. He's cast into the place of death, but he's brought through to resurrection life. As he defeats death and offers the possibility of forgiveness, new life to each one of us. And in a way, each one of us, as we place our faith in Jesus, we kind of, we kind of enter into him. We, we become part of him. We're his body. We've been thinking about that, haven't we, over the last few weeks. But we're now kind of clothed in him, encased in him. He is our ark. And as we sit in Jesus, as we are cast into the place of death, we are protected and carried through all the way to resurrection life in him. We are hopeless slaves, but Jesus says, 
If I set you free, if I set you free, you are free indeed. It looks hopeless, but God knows. God knows again. And actually, the, the, the story finishes for now, at least at the end of chapter 2, with this strange scene. Moses flees to Midian. And actually, as I kind of looked up Midian, it seems to be really the place where they end up after the exodus. So it's almost like he's being fast-forwarded. It's like a mini version of the exodus taking place right at the start of the story. Because it's believed, it's, no one's quite sure, but it seems to be the case that Mount Sinai is in Midian. So Moses is kind of going to the place where they're going to end up, right on the edge of the promised land. And he enjoys this kind of season of flourishing. He meets his wife, Zippy, Zipporah. That's a good name if you're looking for a name for a child, Zipporah. Maybe not, I don't know. But he meets his wife, he starts a family, and actually, if we've been kind of reading the story carefully, Moses is from the tribe of Levi, which means he's from that priestly tribe, and he encounters the priest of Midian. And these are kind of nomadic people who would travel around this region, but almost certainly are his own kind of kinfolk from of old, going all the way back to Abraham. So... There's a sense in which they're flourishing and they're worshipping together as the people of God in this new place, away from the slavery that they've experienced in Egypt. So in verse 22, where it says, they named him Gershom, saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. Literally, actually, what it could say is this, I've been a foreigner in a foreign land. And I've become one, but I was one. I was a foreigner in a foreign land. There's a sense in which now he's come home. He's tasting kind of life at home now, the rest and the peace that all God's people will enjoy on the edge of the promised land. So if we think about Abraham's promise again, we had God's people, but we didn't have the land. Now we have the land, but we don't have the people. They're still in slavery, and Moses must return. But that's a story for another day. But how will it happen? How will God's people and, and God's place come together in a context where we're slaves, in a context where it's utterly hopeless? Well, we don't know, but God knows. The story, in a sense, has just begun. But the one thing that we do know at this point is that God loves to work through apparently hopeless situations. He loves it. And in a way, the Savior that we're introduced to this morning is not Moses, it's God. He's the true Savior. He's the one in complete control. It's tempting, isn't it, in life? I think we do it all the time to ask the question, where is God? Where is God when life is hard? 
Where is God right now? As I go through this, it feels like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling sometimes. And we have no idea how the story will end. There's a sense, is there not, where we need the reader's edge in life. We need the reader's edge. God heard. God remembered. God saw and God knew. God hears. God remembers his promise. God sees everything that we face. And God knows. And he knows us in our suffering. He knows his own promise made and kept in Jesus for us. And he knows exactly what to do. When it says God knew, God knows. It doesn't mean that, like, you know, it's like we read the newspaper and we know the news. It's not a passive thing. And because God knows, God acts. Because God knows, He is in complete control of everything. So, as a church, I wonder where we need to hear that this morning. God often works through the most hopeless of situations. I was reading this week of a missionary named Dr. William Leslie. He was a missionary in the Congo in 1912. And he was there for 17 years seeking to share the gospel with a people who'd never heard of Jesus before. And after 17 years, he returned back to the United States of America with absolutely nothing, really, as far as he knew, to show for it. There was no tangible fruit from 17 years of ministry. And in fact, he'd had to return because he'd had to return to the U.S. because basically there'd been such a poor kind of relationship breakdown with the local tribal leaders that it wasn't really possible for him to continue there. And it wasn't until 2010 that the Mission Aviation Fellowship missionaries returned to the same region. And what they discovered was, it seemed, a kind of entire church planting network throughout this region, from village to village, of flourishing gospel churches who had all been kind of using a French Bible translation that had been passed on and passed on and passed on. And as they kind of dug a little bit deeper to understand what had going on, what was going on, these particular tribes and the churches that they, they'd established linked it all back to this mysterious Dr. Leslie who'd been there over 100 years ago. See, we do not know, do we, what God is doing. We do not know, but God does. And that's actually enough. It's enough for us to have the reader's edge and know that he knows. I think it's a consistent pattern through the Bible and through our lives that God delights to use small, insignificant, weak people weak situations for his glory. 
So as we start the book of Exodus, it's a, it's a moment, isn't it, to step back and just marvel at God. Marvel at God. Whatever we may face as a church, God knows. God knows. What about our own lives as Christians? No doubt each one of us is facing insurmountable challenges that in our own human strength we have no idea how to do it, how to do any of it. It's really lovely the way that this particular story is picked up in the New Testament. I want to just read a couple of verses as we finish, put them on the screen. I don't know if that's big enough for people to read. They're from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read from my Bible. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Isn't that an astonishing thing to say? Kind of gave me goosebumps as I was reading that this week, thinking, but there's a sense in which each one of us, here Moses is an example for us, isn't he? What it means for us to exercise faith and trust God in the hardest of situations. And Moses has to make a choice. He can either choose to be Egyptian, to be one of the world, you might say, or he can choose to belong to Jesus. And that is the choice for each one of us. And he chooses between two homes, the palace of Pharaoh or the promised land. And the choice is the same for us. And it's costly here. It's costly here, isn't it? It means saying no. It means turning and choosing to belong to Christ and to have a home with him in glory instead of making a home for ourselves here. And so we need courage, don't we, to do that. We need courage to live that way. Hebrews 11.27 says, what does it say? He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. See, God's people are never alone. We might not know, but God knows. God knows. God sees. God remembers. And God knows. 
And in Jesus, you belong to the one who rules creation and history. Let's pray. Father, in our own lives, we are aware of the extent to which we feel utterly helpless and hopeless. But we thank you that, God, you know and you have seen fit to meet our deepest need in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we might see him with our mind's eye, with our heart's eye, as we, as we, as we have considered together the, the verses from Exodus, that we would see Jesus, him who is invisible. And we'd be reassured of his hand upon us. And we'd look to him for every single step we take. As we choose to belong to Jesus and not this world, as we choose to make our home with you and not in this age. We need your strength. We need your help for that, your grace. Give us it afresh, we pray. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.